The Lever. Subscriber-supported journalism that holds power accountable. As a Lever Premium subscriber, you'll get to hear exclusive bonus content from this episode and others in your feed. To become a subscriber, go to levernews.com. Hey everyone, welcome to another episode of Lever Time, the show where we're going to dismantle the Supreme Court one Federalist Society judge at a time. I'm your host, David Sirota. On today's show, as I said, we're going to be talking about the Supreme Court, which is on what can only be described as a judicial rampage after this week's past rulings. We'll discuss how dark money, for instance, has transformed the Supreme Court into a radical right-wing force in American politics and how the Democrats' weak response has allowed some of this to happen. Then we'll be discussing the court's big case, West Virginia versus EPA, and what it means for the future of climate action. And finally, we'll be sharing my interview with Colorado Attorney General Phil Weiser and State Senator Julie Gonzalez about the impact of the Dobbs decision, the one that overturned Roe v. Wade, and what it means for abortion rights both in a place like Colorado and in states across the country. This week, our paid subscribers will also get a bonus segment. You'll get to hear my interview with UCLA law professor Adam Winkler, uh, one of the nation's foremost leading experts on gun law. Uh, Adam and I spoke about the court's decision on the New York gun rights case and its implications for gun laws all over the country. A reminder for our free listeners, head over to levernews.com. Please become a supporting subscriber there. That gives you access to our premium feed, plus a whole lot more. As always, I am joined by producer Frank. What's up, Frank? Not much, David. I'm feeling a little bit better at the top of this week than we were at the end of last week. And, you know, we've had a lot to do here at The Lever. So it's it's good to have uh, uh, somewhere to put all of this frustration and anger. It's pretty dark right now. I mean, it it it's a judicial rampage is really what we're in the middle of. And I think it's been jarring to a lot of folks, understandably so. I mean, I think the weird thing is not weird, but the thing is that people feel shocked by things that they knew were going to happen, right? The row overturning, I mean, that was literally telegraphed to us. Why do you think so many people seem not just angry about it, but almost in a, in a state of shock, even though we knew it was coming? You know, I think, I think in their core, people are optimistic and hopeful. And there was maybe this tiniest shred uh, in people's hopes that maybe this ruling wouldn't be as severe as we as we originally thought it would or or, or it would have changed by the time the, the decision actually came down. Yeah, I feel like the leak of the draft was actually almost like calling their shot, like Babe Ruth getting up to the plate and pointing into center field and then hitting the home run there. Like, I think some people hoped that the leak would deter the ruling that would come down, but instead it was like they called they called their home run, uh, uh, their apocalyptic home run. Obviously, I don't I'm not happy that they um, that the extremists on the court hit the home run. No, no, no. We're we're definitely not happy about it. And I just want to I just want to take a second to acknowledge that you know this episode we're going to be talking about 
the Supreme Court. We're going to be talking about a bunch of rulings, but obviously the one at the top of everyone's mind is this Dobbs decision and the overturning of Roe. But I just wanted to take a moment to acknowledge that, you know, David and I are two men. And uh, while no one needs to hear our take on what the impact of this decision means, we're going to be offering as much contextual analysis as possible, um, but also acknowledging that we cannot come from a place of lived experience as far as being personally affected by this decision. Um, I also want to take this opportunity to speak to any uh, men who might be listening to say that, you know, while while no one necessarily needs our opinions about what's happening right now, um, people do need us to stand up and speak out. And it is our responsibility to show up in a moment like this. Yeah, that's a, that's absolutely true. Uh, so dudes, do uh, some listening uh, and try to be as supportive as possible. Uh, if you can, uh, to uh, push back on this kind of ruling. Now, I think we need to ask the question, uh, why are we here? And I want to start the show with just a little, give you some thoughts on why I think we're here. And there's some painful truths to this. This did not happen spontaneously. Uh, This did not happen randomly. This was not an accident. And by this, I mean all of these rulings. Uh, The Supreme Court being on its rampage is something that the American right has been plotting and uh, participating in and creating for the last 50 years. We're here because of the way that both sides have differently conditioned their voters to expect or not expect things from their politicians. For many, many years, conservative media, the Fox News of the world, talk radio and the like, uh, have conditioned Republican voters to demand specific things from their politicians and to hold those politicians accountable. And thus, there are these rulings coming down. That is the product of that. By contrast, the Democratic media machine from MSNBC to NPR to the New York Times to the Atlantic, that whole kind of left of center elite legacy media, plus the Democratic Party's uh, political apparatus, that blob has conditioned Democratic voters to demand nothing from their politicians and never hold their politicians accountable. Thus and so we're here at this moment where when the overturning of Roe came down, the ruling came down, you had the situation where in the face of the overturning of Roe, you had Democrats essentially saying, we can't do much of anything. Joe Biden giving a speech effectively saying, vote harder in the next election. And them not really doing much of anything other than sending out fundraising emails because the Democrats expect that their voters aren't going to demand that they do anything about this now because that's what they've conditioned Democratic voters uh, to do in situations like this, never demand anything. And meanwhile, the Republicans are celebrating the fact that their base demanded an attack on abortion rights. And after many, many years, their political leaders produced the repeal of reproductive rights in America. That's the asymmetry we are are living in. 
Now, I think there's a silver lining here. I think the silver lining is that polls are now showing that the anger and frustration at the Democratic Party, by, not by the right wing, but by good faith, rank and file, Democratic, normie voters, is, is real uh, and going mainstream in a way that it hasn't been real or mainstream in my entire lifetime. And the reason I think that's a good thing is because amid all of this darkness and all of these terrible rulings, one thing we know is that the best things that have ever come out of the government and out of the Democratic Party have come out of the government and the Democratic Party because people were pissed off. Think about it. Social Security, Medicare, Medicaid, the Civil Rights Act, the Voting Rights Act. These things did not happen because nice politicians woke up one day and decided, hey, I'm, I'm going to be a nice guy. I'm going to, you know, I'm going to pass the Civil Rights Act. Like that is not the way it works. Those things happened from Democratic presidents because those presidents were forced kicking and screaming uh, to do those things because they were afraid of the electoral consequences of not doing those things. So when you see a poll that shows, for instance, an NBC poll, 66% of Democratic voters want their politicians to push for big transformative change, even if it risks not passing those changes. When you see a, a poll showing a plurality of Americans don't buy the Democrats' argument that the president has no power to do anything. When you see the polls showing only 25% of young people approve of the job that Joe Biden is doing. Taking all of that together, what that I think shows is that people are not having it. They're not having it. And there was this clip that played on MSNBC. It somehow slipped through the MSNBC filter. Uh, it was a live clip where they interviewed a protester uh, at, uh, after the uh, overturning of Roe. And this protester put it really, really well. Um, so I received a text message from Joe Biden's campaign yesterday saying that the Supreme Court had overturned Roe versus Wade and that it was my responsibility to then rush $15 to the Democratic National Party. Um, and I thought that was absolutely outrageous because my rights should not be a fundraising point for them um, or a campaigning point. Uh, they have had multiple opportunities to codify Roe into law over the past 20, 30, 40, 50 years, and they haven't done it. And if they're going to keep campaigning on this point, they should actually do something about it. That, to me, is the right response to say we're sick and tired of the Democrats saying that they can't do anything while this horrible right wing assault is happening. They run the government right now, or at least the lawmaking apparatus of the government. There's plenty of things that the Congress could do, that the Biden administration could do, that state legislatures could do. And we're going to talk about that uh, on this podcast here in our segment about the Roe ruling. There's plenty of things that they can do. And it's good to see that more and more people are recognizing that. I'm feeling actually good about that. Maybe I'm, Frank, maybe I'm clinging to that too, uh, too, too stringently as, as some shred of good news. I'm desperate for a shred of good news. But, but I think that's good news, don't you? I think this decision is absolutely going to radicalize some normies. Um, and I think that's, yeah, like you're saying, that's one of the few silver linings. Um, and it's it's sucks that it it has to happen because of something so terrible transpiring. To me, that's the silver lining. To me, if this is rock bottom, if this is the turning point, 
then that's one shred of good news in an ocean of bad news. That more normies getting radicalized is, is ultimately, I think, what will save us. That we need more rank and file independents and Democrats to get in the game, get, get into the, into, get engaged and not just accept the idea that the Democratic Party can't do anything. It most certainly can. And I think for a, a, a relative few of us who have been warning about this moment, there's a kind of exasperated feeling that we have been warning about this. I mean, we at The Lever, if you read The Lever, you know we've been obsessing over and reporting on uh, the Supreme Court uh, and its extremism and the funding behind its extremism for a very long time. It, it all kind of feels like that moment in the movie I helped create, Don't Look Up, that, that moment uh, where the comet, they can actually see the comet in the sky. We've been trying to tell you. We've been trying to tell you this whole time. It's right there. It's, it's right there, Kate. If you've been reading the lever, you know we've been trying to tell you. We've been trying to tell you what's really driving what's happening on the Supreme Court. The money behind what's driving what's happening on the Supreme Court. And to go further on that, to really tell that story, we're joined by The Lever's Andrew Perez. Hey, man. How you doing, Andrew? Hey, good afternoon. So you've been reporting for a long time on a guy named Leonard Leo. And I want to get into who Leonard Leo is because you seem to be one of the only reporters in the entire country who has bird-dogged this story. You and I are obsessed with the money driving not only American politics, but the politics of the Supreme Court. And I think everybody needs to understand that what's happening on the Supreme Court is not random. It's not accidental. It's not uh, spontaneous. This, all of these rulings that we've seen, whether it's rescinding Miranda rights to striking down gun laws in New York, uh, to the uh, climate cases coming down the pike, to, of course, the overturning of Roe v. Wade. This is all the culmination of a 50-year campaign that has been supercharged uh, by dark money. So, Andrew, tell us the story of the man at the center of this, a guy named Leonard Leo. Who is he? What is he doing? Um, so Leonard Leo is a longtime executive at the Federalist Society, um, which is the conservative lawyers group in Washington. Um, and then under Trump, he he became uh, Trump's top judicial advisor. So he was helping make um, Trump's court picks, you know, uh, Neil Gorsuch, uh, Brett Kavanaugh, Amy Coney Barrett. Um, and, and he also, since 2005, has been leading um, a dark money network um, called the Judicial Crisis Network uh, that that helps lead the kind of confirmation campaigns for you know first with Roberts uh, with John Roberts and Sam Alito followed by the Trump uh, Trump judges and they also then work to you know basically help give Republicans cover to uh, withhold uh, or to not hold a vote on Merrick Garland in 2016. Um, and, you know, throughout its uh, lifespan, his network really has been funded only by very, very, um, you know, wealthy donors. We have no idea who, but it's, you know, they deal in, you know, five, 10, 25 million dollar increments. Um, and, you know, the, the main goal here has been to chip away at the regulatory state to really 
really kind of d- destroy it um, and defang it. And also to overturn Roe v. Wade, which, you know, quite obviously they just succeeded in doing. So completely dark money. We have no idea who's who's actually donating it. We just know it's a, a shit ton of money. Uh, and we also, from documents that you've uh, dug up and, and reported on, we know that it's from a handful, a, a small handful of donors, but we don't know exactly who they are. That's what that's the network Leonard Leo is running. Now, in your story for The Lever, I thought it was really a, a fascinating insight that Leo's strategy has been to surround the court from both sides. And by that, I mean buying Supreme Court seats running these very well-funded campaigns uh, to get specific judges on the court when when court seats come open. But also then uh, uh, the right-wing dark money network has funded uh, the Republican uh, attorneys general who often are bringing the cases then to the court. Explain how that part of the process works. Yeah, so Leo's network um, is is basically the biggest funder long term of the Republican Attorneys General Association, which you know works to elect Republican AGs, and it also sort of functions as a policy hub where they all kind of get together and say like, okay, we're going to sign on to this case, we're going to submit this brief uh, to the Supreme Court or or to to other courts as well, um, and so. You know, they're the chief funder of the Republican AGs. And, you know, you look at who actually led the abortion case at at the Supreme Court. You know, it's got the name of Thomas Dobbs on it. He is not involved. It was it was the Mississippi Attorney General, Lynn Fitch, backed by 18 other Republican AGs. Um, and so, you know, they, they have been financing the Republican AGs, but they're also then uh, Leo's network is also then funding a bunch of nonprofits that are also filing their own briefs in these cases. You know, like in the abortion case, you have uh, Mike Pence's group, former Vice President Mike Pence, uh, Advancing American Freedom. You have the Beckett Fund for Religious Liberty. Um, really, you could go on and on with this, but it's it's a pattern that we saw just, just you know, we did a very quick deep dive and it, it stood out immediately. Um, Andrew, can I ask you something? And I'm, I'm sort of doing my producer job here because a, a lot of things might have changed by the time that this episode comes out. So... Uh, what other major decisions are we expecting from the Supreme Court soon? Sure. Um, well, by Wednesday, um, you know, we could see the the Supreme Court. Um, they're widely expected to rule in the case on West Virginia versus EPA. Um, and you know, it's it's it, the the point of that case is to is to really undermine um, the EPA's ability to regulate carbon emissions um, at all. Say that it's. That um, you know they can't do that right now. That Congress can't delegate um, their authority to regulatory agencies to really actually write laws. Um, anytime they, um, you know, they're saying that anytime the government wants to regulate um, a new pollutant, um, that that they need to basically get uh, get legislation from Congress. That Congress needs to specifically authorize it. And that's so. That's a case that was brought by the West Virginia Attorney General um, and seventeen other uh, Republican attorneys generals, uh, attorneys general. Um, you know who again are are you know funded uh, first and foremost by the Leo Network, um, and you know we looked at um, another group filing a case in that or filing a brief in that case. Um, the New Civil Liberties Alliance is also funded by the Leo Network. Um, 
you know, another case that's going to come down um, is the Remain in Mexico case where Republican attorneys general from Texas and Missouri are trying to force the Biden administration to maintain this policy um, from the Trump administration requiring uh, asylum seekers to stay in Mexico while they're waiting for their asylum hearings. Um, and so obviously that's that's, you know, more Republican attorneys general and they're being backed by another um, 19 Republican AGs as well as um Mike Pence's nonprofit, Advancing American Freedom, which again is funded by the Leo Network. What, if anything, can be done about this? Uh, and and how much awareness do you think people have about this? I mean, and, and I'll even go further. If there isn't enough awareness about this, why do you think that is? Yeah, it's it's really hasn't been covered that widely. Um, you know, there have been some profiles like uh, of Leonard Leo, like there was an NPR one recently. Um, and, and, you know, there's been like a New Yorker one and in, in a Washington Post one several years ago, but it hasn't really been covered in any kind of sustained way. Um, you know, I think I think that is a, a real issue here, other than outside of like smaller news outlets like Open Secrets or, you know, the the, the watchdog group uh, crew, uh, Citizens for Responsibility and Ethics in Washington. You know, the, it's basically been them and us um, covering covering the actual daisy chain of money that's getting thrown around here. Um, as far as things that can be done, you know, Democrats, um, you know, their their big kind of sweeping voting rights bill. Um, that they've, you know, kind of chipped away at and then didn't pass. Um, you know, it, it did it did contain at least initially a measure that would um, compel disclosure of um, donors to dark money groups to nonprofits that are trying to influence judicial uh, judicial confirmation campaigns. Um, and, you know, it's it's something that it's it is an obvious first step, right, because they've they've been able to do all this with secret money um, and, and obviously coming from just a very small handful of donors and, and, and it could be potentially corporate interests. We really have no, no idea who's funding it. Um, and, and it's one of the biggest stories of, of any of our lifetimes. One last question on this. And to your point about the Republican attorneys general, I mean, not only are they bringing the cases, but they are also filing these so-called amicus briefs, which influence are designed to influence the court's ultimate rulings. These amicus briefs essentially offer, uh, under, the, under the guise of expertise, they offer the court uh, analysis and opinions on uh, the technical aspects of cases. Is there... Anybody, in light of this entire network, are there any particular champions in the Congress uh, who have sh sh shined a spotlight on this, uh, who seem particularly motivated about this? Or is this just something you mentioned, this provision that was put into the uh, voting rights bill that never went anywhere? Is this just something that the, that the Democrats talk about? Or do you think there's folks in Congress and more of, mo more of a motivation now to actually get something done to at least bring this into uh, the, the sunlight? Yeah, yeah. So the the one senator who's really been kind of leading the push is uh, Sheldon Whitehouse uh, out of Rhode Island. Um, you know, he's been pushing to both uh, compel disclosure of this money and also like kind of laying out what what we are here. You know, the way he's described it is that is that like conservatives are filing this like flotilla of amicus briefs, um, and that's you know he's talked about it a bit on the Senate floor, um, but it's you know outside of him, no, I don't I don't think there's been a particularly sustained strategy here. Um, Andrew, I have one th thought slash question. Would it, would it 
make sense to you that if people who are directing their anger at the justices who were part of this decision, like Gorsuch, Kavanaugh, Barrett, would it make more sense to be directing their anger towards someone like Leonard Leo, who it seems has a more influential role in uh, getting us to this place? Yeah, yeah. Um, I do think he should be a household name at this point, right? Like he did pull off effectively a judicial coup, right? Like Republicans have flip this court from, you know, what what could very easily right now be a, a Democratic majority, right? With if things go just very slightly differently. Um, and by that, I mean, you know, if, if you know, Ruth Bader Ginsburg had retired, um, you'd be in a very different situation. If, if, if Democrats had had, you know, packed the court, if they had if they had if they had put Merrick Garland on the court in 2016, instead of uh, and instead of, you know, just allowing Mitch McConnell to to, to withhold a vote on him, um, things would be very different. So, um, you know, basically, the Leo's network has has really kind of used this court to to set policy and drive and drive our country f- far far to the right in a way that um, that that is really underappreciated. And yeah, I do I do think that people should should know who he is. I mean, and- your point about Leonard Leo needing to be a household name is it really resonates. Roger Stone has been a household name. Uh, the Cokes have been a household name. I mean, there's no shortage of villains uh, who uh, Democrats, Democratic voters, liberals know. And yet Leonard Leo, the guy who arguably has had the most amount of impact on our world, is barely known by any anyone, anyone other than, I should say, anyone other than the lever readers, thanks to your reporting. Yeah. If anyone deserves, if anyone deserves protesters outside of their homes, it's, it's these people. Uh, This, this guy is really, really the puppet master. Andrew, thank you for all of your great reporting on this and all of your reporting that you will continue to do on this uh, for the lever. Thanks a lot, man. Thank you. Now we're going to be focusing in on that Dobbs decision, which overturned 50 years of legal precedent originally decided by Roe v. Wade. I'm going to be speaking with Colorado Attorney General Phil Weiser and State Senator Julie Gonzalez. Phil was a clerk for Ruth Bader Ginsburg and is now the primary legal defender of abortion rights in the state, which, by the way, was one of the first states in America to originally legalize abortion. Julie helped pass the Reproductive Health Equity Act here in Colorado this past year, one of the most comprehensive abortion rights laws in America. And she's now drafting a new bill to expand protections to both providers and women seeking abortions. I talked with Phil and Julie about what the Dobbs decision really means in practice for millions of women in the country. We talked about the authority of city and states to continue protecting abortion access. And we talked about where we go from here and what states and local communities can do. Hey, Phil. Hey, Julie. Go Avs. Go Avs. Great to be with you. Yeah, and we have one piece of good news. The uh, the Avs won the Stanley Cup, so I'm try I'm I'm grasping for good news of late. So like, I just feel like I need to like virtually high five you as Denver folks uh, for the Avs. Uh, it has nothing to do with our conversation. You got nominated for an Oscar this year. That's good news. That was that was good news. Thank you, thank you. So grasping at any straws of of good news in these dark times. So Phil, I'm going to start with you. Um, the reason we're talking to both of you uh, today, well, for many reasons, uh, about the uh, Roe decision, the overturning of Roe, uh, Colorado has kind of a special place in the uh, in the reproductive rights uh, saga in America. Phil, if you can, just to start off. 
Tell us a little bit of that story, why Colorado has been so important. This is an important story. It starts with Dick Lamb, who was a state legislator, and he looked at abortion laws and asked a basic question. Abortion looks like health care. Why do we criminalize it? And he passed what was the first law liberalizing access to abortions. Now, the truth was, for years, this had been happening sub rosa in different ways, shapes, or form. But Colorado passed this abortion liberalization law. He was a Democrat. He was actually in the minority. The governor at the time, John Love, a Republican, talked to his daughter, who became a later Colorado Supreme Court Justice, Becky Love Corliss, and asked her as a teenager, what do you think about this idea of liberalizing access to abortion? And she related to me that those conversations that Governor Love had, the conversations Dick Lambs had, were transformative because people hadn't thought about this. Colorado liberalized access to abortions in the mid-1960s, early what became a wave before we got to Roe versus Wave. So Colorado, I, I, if I'm not mistaken, the first state to officially legalize uh, abortion, legalize reproductive rights in America in, in the late 1960s. Is that basically what happened? Yes, I think it was actually the mid-1960s. Famously, California later liberalizes abortion uh, access under Governor, yes, wait for it, Ronald Reagan. Um, that was one of the other early eras. And, and this is an important point. We were seeing more and more states act in advance of Roe versus Wade. Uh, it was, I believe, in the mid-teens by the time we got to Roe versus Wade of states who would liberalize access to abortion. So I want to turn to Julie. Julie, in the state legislature this year in Colorado, our state legislature uh, put in statute some protections for abortion uh, rights. So I would want to ask you, what did the legislature do uh, and what kinds of protections does it put in place against the ruling that came down uh, last week? You know, the day that uh, Texas enacted its uh, six-week abortion ban, Senate Bill 8, we there was a, a rally that emerged spontaneously uh, on the west steps of the Capitol. And, um, you know, I showed up and there were a lot of people there and even a couple of my constituents. And they said, look, rallying, I get it. Like, that's important. We're going to do, we're going to rally. But they asked me, Jules, what are you going to do? And so we got to work right then and there uh, drafting what ultimately became the Reproductive Health Equity Act to ensure that our reproductive health care decisions, including abortion, uh, can't be interfered with uh, by the government. And so was really proud to introduce that law uh, and uh, uh, work alongside Majority Leader uh, Denea Asgar and Representative Froelich. And out of the 61 Democrats within the Colorado General Assembly, all 61 voted for it. All uh, Every single Republican voted against that. Um, that was signed into law by Governor Polis uh, back in April of this year. And what it ensures is that if you want to choose to carry a, a pregnancy to term, that is your decision. Uh, government can't get involved in that. If you want to access abortion care, um, that, that decision can't be interfered with by the, by the government either. And so it is a really important protection uh, for everyone because we saw when Texas moved forward with its policy in light of the pending uh, Supreme Court case uh, in Dobbs, we saw that the potential of Roe versus Wade falling uh, was, was, was a real threat. And so we acted, and here we are today. I'm so 
glad to be able to to have those affirmative protections in statute. And yet we also know that there's still more work to do in light of the policies that we're seeing uh, that, that seek to criminalize women in other states for coming to places like Colorado or other 20, the other 20 some odd states who still uh, will um, allow access to abortion care, even in light of the, Ro- the, the Roe v. Wade decision being overturned, the way that those states are acting is dangerous and will lead to criminalization of patients and providers. And we have more work to do. Phil, I want to turn to what attorney generals, what that role can do, how positive or uh, destructive a role that can play. You're running for re-election here in Colorado, a blue state. Uh, The Republicans are going to try to take you out. The Republican Attorneys General Association is probably going to spend a lot of money here. In terms of, of what this ruling does, what does an attorney general mean to all of this, both here in Colorado and elsewhere in the rest of the country when people are thinking about their votes for uh, an office like attorney general? The attorney general is the chief legal officer of the state. When people have questions, what does this Reproductive Health Equity Act that Senator Julie Gonzalez worked on so masterfully mean in practice, it's our office that's charged with interpreting with enforcing and with defending this law. If you had a Colorado attorney general who did not believe in Roe versus Wade, who did not believe in the Reproductive Health Equity Act, you literally could disable this law from being implemented. People could disregard this law. People could attack this law and find the attorney general joining the attackers, not being a defender. Too often, people overlook why attorneys general matter. Now that Roe versus Wade has been overturned, and obviously we had another decision the day before around the Second Amendment, um, and we've been talking a lot in Colorado about gun safety too, those are two examples of what an attorney general does. Attorney general protects the people of the state, defends the laws of the state, protects people's rights. Obviously, as attorney general, I'm all in to defend reproductive rights. I'm here to protect Colorado's law and the people of Colorado. But you could have an attorney general who says, I'm out. I'm not defending reproductive rights. I'm going to seek to limit reproductive rights, to make it harder for clinics to operate, to tell other states, come after anyone having an abortion in Colorado, and I'll let you. Not me. Anyone who wants to criminalize anyone in Colorado getting health care, they've got to come through us first because we're going to defend the right to reproductive rights here in Colorado. So I want to follow up with you very quickly on that uh, before we go to the state of affairs uh, back in the legislature. The ruling as you read it, what does it mean uh, for states? What does it mean for a a potential national outlawing of abortion? I guess what I'm trying to ask is for people who, who just heard that Roe v. Wade was overturned, what does it functionally mean in practice for someone living in a red state, someone living in a blue state? Like, How does the, this specific ruling actually work? In many states right now, the only protection for reproductive rights, for abortion rights, was the Supreme Court. In all those states, that protection is gone. Instead, in states like Texas, Doctors are going to be told, if you perform an abortion, you're committing a crime. And there's this other crazy law that is basically vigilante justice where it allows individuals to sue doctors for money damages for providing health care. So that's that's a, a reign of terror. And the 
Women in Texas facing horrible choices, particularly people of color who don't have a lot of money. Do I get an illegal, unsafe abortion? Am I going to bear a child against my will that I can't handle, a great mental anguish to myself? Or am I going to try to find a way to get to Colorado, which, again, if you don't have a lot of means, that's not easy to do. We've just created incredible trauma for people. We just made doctors uh, have to ask questions about their being subject to criminal processes for trying to save lives in some cases. So today, we are now living in this scary world. It is no longer hypothetical. It is real. It's happening today, not in Colorado, but in some other states like Texas. So Julie, I want to go back to the state legislature for a second. We already have, have effectively codified a basic uh, reproductive rights protections in our state law. If there are other state legislators listening, uh, if there are people work, who want to know what they can ask their state legislators to do, what are the kinds of things they can do uh, beyond that? What you, I know, are proposing a bill, an additional piece of legislation in Colorado. Tell us what that's about and what you would say to other state legislators, people wanting to pressure their state legislators about what to do. Absolutely. You know, I think exactly what uh, Attorney General Weiser is speaking about in terms of this new era that we're going to be entering into in terms of vigilante justice. We're seeing other states that are controlled by Republicans uh, really trip over themselves in order to try and say, who's going to be the worst? Who's going to be the state that criminalizes uh, and, and proposes the most heinous policy that will lead to more pregnant people dying uh, in our states? As a result, um, there is going to be a lot of fear mongering through policy, and there's also going to be a lot of vigilantism. And so that's upon us. And I, part of what we want to do in Colorado it, and in other blue states across the country, um, we're trying to think creatively on how best do we protect the patients, uh, whether you're in Colorado or whether you're um, visiting Colorado to seek abortion care. Um, we want to make sure that you are protected and that you're safe from harm, right? The same goes for providers and the doctors, the nurses, all of the staff, uh, that they are also uh, free to do their work. And it's why I think both uh, us as legislators, we should be putting forward those affirmative protections. And we also should be working hand in hand uh, with our attorneys general, uh, like uh, Attorney General Weiser, to ensure that those laws are, are um, protecting the people in the best manner possible. That's the work ahead uh, in blue states. And in other states as well, um, in, the, in the red states, I think that this is the opportunity for us to really uh, lift up our voices and share our stories as, as to what's happening on the ground, because we've seen that the very first woman uh, to be criminalized in the state of Texas post uh, uh, the passage of Senate Bill 8 in Texas was a woman of color, a Latina woman in the borderlands of South Texas, um, who was charged with murder following a miscarriage, right? That's what's at stake. And they're banking on us not telling our stories. They're banking on us uh, being enveloped in, in fear and shame. And this is a time for us to lift up, lift up our voices and say exactly what the impact of those laws are going to be on people. Okay, so I want to talk a little bit about the politics here because I know people who are listening 
I feel like there's a lot of anger out there, a lot of anger, obviously, at the Republicans. There's a lot of feeling of frustration with the Democrats, with various decisions that were made in the past. So, Phil, I want to ask you a question. You clerked for Ruth Bader Ginsburg. There's been this whole discussion about whether she should have retired early, uh, whether or earlier than 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 she, you know she stayed on the court. Um, I'm curious, was that on her mind? Do you when you discussed with her, talked to her about various things about the fear of this very reality. What do you say to folks who say, you know, we're all here because uh, our uh, RBG didn't res retire uh, at, a, at a time where she could be replaced by a Democratic president? We're here for a lot of reasons. And it's not really fair to pick one of them. Um, obviously, if Hillary Clinton won the 2016 election, we wouldn't be having this conversation. And there's lots of things we can talk about what happened there. We're here because we lost Senate races, by the way, in Colorado in 2014, among them, that had the Democrats controlled the Senate, this wouldn't have happened. Just remember, in a normal world, and we didn't have normal leaders, Merrick Garland could have been on the Supreme Court. We wouldn't be having this conversation. So what I'd say to people is, there are so many lessons. There are so many causes. We have to be honest about all of them. And the painful reality for one to two generations, we've been outworked, we've been outplanned, we've been outgunned, we've been complacent. We assumed, and I understand this assumption because the American story has been one of freedoms being expanded, equality being expanded. This decision and what it portends, which we should talk about for a couple minutes, is the opposite. This is freedom is being rolled back. This is equality being undermined. So people in some way refuse to believe this could happen. And so, Julie, I want to turn to you and I want to play uh, two clips for you. And I want to get your reaction to them because I feel like these clips embody why, why a lot of people uh, feel particularly misled and angry. This is one clip from 2007 when Barack Obama was running for president. Play this clip, Frank. Well, the first thing I do as president is, is sign the Freedom of Choice Act. Uh, that's the first thing that I do. Okay, so he says that in 2007. In 2009, President Obama, in very early 2009, here's what he says at a press conference. Now, the Freedom of Choice Act is not my highest legislative priority. So my question for you on this is, I'm sure you're talking to a lot of people in your community who feel like they've heard that if we just vote for Democrats in the next election, they will finally codify Roe v. Wade into federal statute. That's what the Freedom of Choice Act that Obama was talking about there. What do you say to folks who remember being told that before, who feel kind of like, fool me once, shame on you, fool me twice, shame on me? In other words, what do you say to folks who say, listen, I've heard you tell me that, and I, the last time around, it didn't happen? <laughs> um, David, I hear the, the clips. And um, it makes me think a lot about uh, the promises that were made by politicians from both parties in regards to uh, immigration as well, right? There have been a lot of uh, frustrating points um, in, our, in our most recent history uh, politically, where, quite frankly, um, the Democrats haven't always been as strong as we should be um, on issues that impact people's lives. 
it's why I moved from protesting outside the Capitol to legislating within it, because I realized um, that the community does the work of visioning, of saying, hey, this is what we want. And then the legislative work inside the dome is translating that vision into um, statute, into policy that can then be defended to protect people's lives. That's a, that's the work ahead. And um, I got to be honest, um, the Democratic Party hasn't always been um, strong enough in terms of being clear about how we will use power once we wield it. We have a Democratic trifecta in Colorado right now that is very much at risk. Um, the Republicans are just hoping that we keep our heads down, that we uh, that, that, that they keep their heads down, that they don't um, sound off too many alarms about the fact that they're running insurrectionists, election deniers, um, and QAnon people uh, as, as the front runners and standard barriers of their party. That doesn't then just mean that we get as Democrats to fold our arms and say, cool, we got this. We also have to demonstrate and lay out what the plan is. I, I say this uh, knowing that my chamber in the Senate, uh, the Colorado State Senate, is very much at risk of being flipped. Um, Attorney General Weiser's race is it very much uh, at risk of, of being flipped. There are a number of key races up and down the ballot that will very much determine whether or not we are able to actually move forward that policy that I mentioned earlier to protect patients, to protect doctors, to protect any type of abortion care provider. There is so much more work at stake. And I guess what I, I just want to say is that um, we are here now in the midst of multiple crises, in the midst of um, uh, the pandemic, the racial reckoning, the climate crisis, <laughs> and, and, and $5 a gallon gasoline, right? Like massive economic inequality. This could be a point where we like fold our arms and sit back and say, well, that sucks, but you should vote for us again. Or we can actually propose policies and do the work on the ground with the folks who have been frustrated to say, hey, what is, it, what is the world that you want to see so that we can then work together to make it happen? That's our work ahead. And Colorado, it should, I should mention, Colorado is, if it geographically exists in an ocean of red states. So in other words, Colorado is kind of geographically positioned when it comes to the overturning of Roe to be a place, a safe haven for people. And Phil, you mentioned that, you know, it is expensive. It's hard to, to travel here from far away, but we are geographically in the middle of an ocean of, of, of land, uh, of states uh, where people's reproductive rights uh, are are going to be or are or already are curtailed. It's a really, really we're going to play potentially a really, really important role in this. Uh, I want to turn one last question uh, over to you, a legal question. You were a lawyer in the uh, Obama Justice Department. Um, it's a question about uh, perjury. Uh, Colorado also, of course, playing a role in this ruling in the sense that. Uh, Neil Gorsuch, unfortunately, uh, came to the Supreme Court from Colorado. We're going to play a, a clip or two here of a couple of these Supreme Court justices who uh, said that they believed that Roe was settled precedent. They told the Senate this in their confirmation hearings. Senator, again, I would tell you that Roe versus Wade decided in 1973. It is a precedent of the United States Supreme Court. It was reaffirmed in Casey in 1992 and in several other cases. 
And one of the important things to keep in mind about Roe v. Wade is that it has been reaffirmed many times over the past uh, 45 years, as you know. And uh, most prominently, most importantly, reaffirmed in Planned Parenthood versus Casey in 1992. Senator, I completely understand why you are asking the question, but again, I can't pre-commit or say, yes, I'm going in with some agenda, because I'm not. I don't have any agenda. I have no agenda to try to overrule Casey. Um, I have an agenda to stick to the rule of law and decide cases as they come. Phil, my question to you is, do you think there's any legal possibility that this rises to the level of perjury? In other words, do you think that the House Democrats should actually look at whether the justices, the justice nominees who came up, uh, violated the law in getting on the court by not telling the truth under oath in their confirmations? The bottom line is to show perjury, you have to show that someone lied and knew they were lying when they said what they said. And the easy defense is, yes, they said Roe would settle law. It was settled law. They unsettled it, full stop. And so this doesn't really lend itself to a legal remedy. I just want to underscore what the remedy is. It's a political remedy, and it's a remedy at the local and state level. What Julie said is a call to action and engagement, and there's nobody who integrates that better than Senator Julie Gonzalez, who builds support and trust at the grassroots, legislates with people to build the world people want. I recognize how broken Washington, D.C. is, and I recognize how disillusioned people are with what they see. But what I want people to look at is the work that Julie and her colleagues are doing to protect consumers, particularly the most vulnerable among us for being preyed on by towing companies or those who own mobile home parks, for a criminal justice system that we know can be fairer and more just, for working together to make sure we address a mental health crisis. There's so much that matters at the state level. Julie also made a second point. The people running against me and others are not necessarily going to be honest about reproductive rights. We have to demand honest answers from everybody on these issues so people can make informed decisions. Right now, there's a big question. What type of pol politics are we going to have? And if people show up the way Senator Julie Gonzalez shows up, we're going to have a great political future here in Colorado. But if people don't show up, that's when bad things happen. I mean, that's a really great point to end on, which is that the uh, those justice nominees coming up and pretending like they they believed that Roe v. Wade uh, was settled and they weren't going to touch it, and then very quickly turning around and uh, unsettling it, as you put it, is a reminder that you are probably going to see a number of Republican candidates in this election try to avoid the issue, try to kind of soft pedal it, try to try to kind of evade making clear where they really come down on an issue like reproductive rights. It's a, it's a really good reminder that essentially the Republican Party may try to do in the election what their judicial nominees did to the U.S. Senate. And, and I, I mean, I'm, I'm, again, one of these like fool me once, shame on me, fool me twice, shame on or whatever it is. Fool me, fool me once, shame on you, fool me twice, shame on, on me. I, I really hope voters get that message. Uh, Julie Gonzalez, Phil Weiser, thanks for being with us. Thank you so much. Always a pleasure. We're going to take a quick break, but we'll be right back to discuss the court's decision on West Virginia versus EPA and what that means for the future of climate action. 
Now we're going to take a look at another Supreme Court case with more far-reaching implications, and that's West Virginia versus EPA. Sounds like a real technical, esoteric case, and it is, but it's also an apocalyptic case. Now, to be clear, we don't know when this ruling will come down. You may be listening to this as it is being released, but this case is so important, we really wanted to get ahead of it, especially because we've been reporting on it at The Lever. In this case, a group of Republican attorneys general are suing the Environmental Protection Agency over that agency's power to regulate greenhouse gas emissions. Now, you might be thinking, the EPA, it's the Environmental Protection Agency. What are you talking about, Sirota? What do you mean the EPA's authority to regulate greenhouse gas emissions is in question? Well, this case could essentially kneecap the government's ability to enforce climate regulations. It could disempower the EPA amid a climate emergency. And it could do so even though a new survey uh, from Data for Progress found that 62% of all likely voters do not want the Supreme Court to restrict the EPA from regulating greenhouse gas emissions during the climate crisis. But as we've seen with this court, and as they've explicitly said, they literally do not care about public opinion. And the question is, do they even care about preserving the ecosystem that supports all human life on the planet? To help break everything down about this case, we're now gonna go to my interview with the great Amy Westervelt. Amy is an award-winning journalist and author who's done extensive reporting on the climate crisis. She's the host of the terrific podcast series called Drilled. First, I spoke with Amy about the West Virginia case, and then, to make matters even more horrifying, we spoke about how fossil fuel companies are using shadowy international courts to sue governments, foreign governments, domestic governments, state governments, local governments, for monetary damages. You heard that right. Fossil fuel companies want their money back from not getting to pollute the planet and destroy the environment. Just a heads up, as I said, we recorded this interview with Amy before the West Virginia case came down. Hey, Amy, how you doing? Oh, hanging in there. <laughs> yeah, <you>? it's dark <laughs> times. And I just, just want to start out at the top by thanking you for all of your terrific reporting on the climate crisis. You've been ahead of the story, the apocalypse, uh, far ahead of almost everybody in journalism. And I'm sure that has taken uh, an emotional toll, a psychological toll in covering something as, as difficult and as scary as the climate crisis. So I want to start off by thanking you for that um, and just asking right now as the crisis gets worse, how are you feeling? Um, yeah, I mean, I'm feeling pretty, um, what's the word, I guess, anxious, panicked. Um, I don't know. I, I, I don't want to, um, I don't want to like, you know, play into the, the whole kind of doomer route too of, of like all is lost because I do believe and i think the science backs this up that you know every percentage of a degree matters and um you know any anything we do helps so um i, I don't know i don't i don't feel like i will ever get to a point where i think it's just time to throw in the towel um but we're not going in the right direction and that is pretty depressing to see Yes, it's disconcerting. Absolutely. And what we're going to talk about is about how there are forces at work 
trying to make us continue going in the wrong direction. And so I want to start with a discussion of of what's at the Supreme Court right now. And this discussion is about, we're going to have a whole discussion about the legal attack on the fight against climate change. And I think the biggest thing on that right now is this case, West Virginia versus EPA. It is at the court now. In my, To my yeah. mind, there's a lot of horrible cases coming down down the pike from the Supreme Court. Uh, to, to my mind, this yeah. might be, I mean, there's. I, I'm not saying this is more scary than the repeal of Roe or more, I'm like, well, I'm not comparing horrible things, but this is like way no. up there as one of the scariest things out there. And it's gotten relatively little attention. So I guess for those who don't know about this case, why don't you just lay out for us what this case is and why it's so important? Yeah, it is um, hugely important. I, I, I feel like... Um, a lot of, and again, not to say that the Rogue um, case is not important, but I think that a lot of really big structural things are being um, overlooked as people focus on Roe. Um, you know, like there was this case recently, too, that said that now the Border Patrol can enter your home if you live 100 miles or less from the border, right? Like, that's a pretty huge deal. um, And I haven't really seen much about it. Uh, West Virginia versus EPA is is another one of these where I think it sounds kind of, you know, wonky and procedural, but it it has potentially huge implications. So basically, um, the complaint is that the EPA does not have explicit authorization in the Clean Air Act to regulate greenhouse gas emissions, and that therefore the Clean Power Plan should not be implemented. Now, step one, that's ridiculous because the Clean Power Plan was not implemented, nor will it ever be implemented. So really, the case should have just thrown this, the court should have just thrown this case out. But it's almost as if, it's almost as if the justices want to rule on this case. It's almost as if they they want to do damage. So what would the damage be? Exactly, exactly. So in the oral arguments, uh, Justice Coney Barrett in particular kept coming back to this thing called the major questions doctrine, which is this sort of catch-all that allows the court to engage with you know, anything that they think is ambiguous enough that they should rule on it. Um, And in this case, I mean, it it really, it could still, they could still come out and say, actually, we're not going to rule on this. That is still a possibility. Um, And I have seen people say that they might be thinking about doing that. And, you know, especially if they're going to release that at the same time as the Roe decision, you know, to sort of tamp down on reactions. I think that's a very idealistic and naive view of this court, personally. The other end of the spectrum, which I anticipate them doing more, is uh, they could they could have a pretty broad ruling that says you cannot um, regulate greenhouse gas emissions under the Clean Air Act, which would be um, a pretty huge ruling. It would strip whatever authority the EPA currently has to regulate greenhouse gas emissions, especially beyond the quote unquote fence line of power plants. So that that's kind of the gist of the argument here is like you can't you can only regulate emissions that are coming out of the smokestack, first of all. And once they leave the vicinity of the power plant, you no longer have authority. Um, so that that's a big uh, 
potential outcome here. The other thing I want to point out is that this is this is a Raga case. So this is the Republicans Attorney General Association, which was formed as a reaction to the tobacco litigation in the 1990s. Um, you know, because they looked at it and they said, "Wow, those Democrats actually um, <laughs> that was a smart strategy. We should be doing that." So they pulled together. They um, worked really hard to get more Republican AGs elected. They now have slightly more, I think it's 52 to 48 Republican attorneys general. And they have been over the last decade in particular, working together to bring these big constitutional challenges to try to affect structural change. So anytime you see like 10 or more Republican AGs on a case, that's Raga. And they have an enormous dark money fund we know that the Cokes are investing in that. We know that, you know, all of the usual suspects are are putting their money there. Um, so, you know, this is very much like a very intentional case funded largely by the fossil fuel industry with the intent of blocking the EPA from regulating greenhouse gases. So, th- so the nightmare scenario is the Environmental Protection Agency, the national agency whose job it is, is to protect the environment, that West Virginia, by the way, what a caricature that this is West Virginia versus the EPA, right? Like the, you know, the the center of coal versus the EPA, that the court could basically say the lead federal environmental agency does not have the power anymore to regulate greenhouse gas emissions at the very same time that scientists are screaming at us that we need to tamp down greenhouse gas emissions. That's really where we are. Yeah, it is. I should say, too, that, like, I mean, there are others. So there's, there was a petition filed last week to um, get the EPA to look at regulating greenhouse gases under the Toxic Substances Control Act, which would still be possible even in the worst case scenario here. So they're they're only limiting, you know, they're basically saying you can't use the Clean Air Act to do this. Got it. However, part of the ruling could be, you know, uh, if they if they say something like, because you are not explicitly authorized to do this in the language of this act, Basically, what they're trying to do is force Congress's hand and say, look, you either have to pass legislation that puts this in law or the well, EPA is uh, never going to be go able into to do that. it. Let's go into that yeah. because that's really important because regardless of what happens in this case, there could be mm-hmm. another case like it next year, the year after. I Correct. mean, they're going to keep doing Absolutely. this. Absolutely. Yeah. So, yep. so another case like this is going to come down the pike. I keep coming back to something very simple, which is – Am I wrong in saying that the Democratic Congress tomorrow could have a one-page bill, even a arguably a one-sentence bill, that says the EPA has the statutory authority to regulate greenhouse gas emissions, the end, and the entire case no longer matters because the case is about Correct. whether the EPA has the power. Is that right? That's right. That's right. It's, it's really at, at its core about whether – The federal government has the right to assign some of its authority to a regulatory agency. And that really gets at the broader Republican mission of getting rid of agencies, right? Like they 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 want to say that only Congress has the power to pass any kind of regulation and that it shouldn't be sort of handing that job over to regulatory agencies agencies. The other thing that I want to point out, and I think we're going to see conservatives fighting this too, is that 
the EPA already has statutory approval to regulate particulate matter, which is created by the same thing that generates greenhouse gas emissions, right? It's the combustion of fossil fuels. So you will absolutely start to see the anti-air pollution regulation argument emerging from the right especially if they're successful with West Virginia versus Oh, cool, EPA. cool. So we're going to, we can either die in, just, a, in a fire uh, tornado <laughs> or get asphyxiated <laughs> yeah. by smog thanks to the Republican push here. I mean, I mean, it, it just keeps getting darker. So that's a good segue to the other topic in the same legal realm that I want to talk about, which, which is arguably just as dark, if not darker. Um, the effort to use international courts to overthrow, undermine, defang uh, climate laws all over the world. I'm sure some people just heard that and they, they, they don't even know what I'm talking about. So explain to everybody listening in, in a way that, that we can all understand, what are we talking about in international courts? What kind of, how, how yeah. can somebody go to an international court and overturn you know, my city or my state or my country's law that says we should fight climate change? How is that possible? It's, it's totally insane. And every time I talk to people about this, I'm like, okay, so there's these secret tribunals, right? And they're like, whoa, whoa, wait, what? <laughs> <laughs> it's true. There are these arbitral tribunals. So, so there's a process called international arbitration. And and it is somewhat embedded in almost every free trade agreement or investment treaty. So when a company goes to invest in a country, they are given these assurances that and like the example that's always used is, well, what if like the country gets taken over by a dictator and my company is seized? What protection do I have? Right. That has very rarely happened in the history of this stuff. Um, these agreements have been around since the 60s. The very first of these um, cases happened in 1987. Basically, these free trade agreements say if something happens where you've made this big investment and laws that are passed in the country, you know, impact the profitability of that investment or the viability of that investment, you are allowed to file a claim to, uh, against that government to get them to basically make up the profit that you've lost from them, you know, passing this law or changing regulations in some way. Either rescind so, the law or, or pay the law, have the government pay the lost profits. Right. Right. Well, in, in the case of international arbitration, they can't force them to rescind the law. All right, they can right. do is get the the money. Right. But what what that does is it 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 puts a lot of countries in the position of feeling like, well, we can't really afford a bunch of billion dollar plus arbitration claims. So we're just not going to pass that law. Um, you know, or even, I mean, honestly, even if you win one of these, so I, I covered a case in El Salvador, maybe 10 years ago, where they, they actually won, it was a Canadian mining company, El Salvador had had all of these water contamination problems from mining, they passed a law that said, we're going to pause mining permits until we figure out how to do it safely to protect our water resources. And this Canadian mining company was like, but we already have a permit to mine. <laughs> so, so they took them to arbitration and El Salvador ended up winning. But, you know, by the time they won, they were already out millions of dollars worth of legal fees. So even just the fees involved will have a chilling effect on the regulatory framework. Um, and, you know, these are very, very like shadowy sort of quasi-legal systems where you have three 
judges who are uh, one of which is appointed by the company that's filing the complaint. That seems totally fair. Um, <laughs> it seems seems great. And then they're completely not transparent. There's been some movement in the last few years to like um, make them more open to the public, but in the in the vast majority of cases, it all happens behind closed doors. Um, you don't the the people who are on this panel. Um, do not have to have any particular knowledge of the industry, environmental concerns, the country that this is taking place. All they have to know about is the arbitration process. So, I mean, it's, it is, um, yeah, it's ridiculous. And of course, you know, we've been seeing this with environmental laws for a long time. And the expectation is we will increasingly start to see it as a way to try to block climate policy. Right. There's obviously a chilling effect. If, 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 you, if a country, a small country knows there's a threat of this, uh, th- it creates a deterrent effect to passing uh, uh, environmental laws, uh, laws to, to reduce uh, greenhouse gas emissions. And, and the, the acceleration of these cases is, is real news. I mean, we, we at The Lever recently yeah. reported on a report that found that uh, fossil fuel companies have emerged victorious 72% of the time in these cases already, and that there's this new uh, uh, treaty, the Energy Charter Treaty. Uh, it's not new; it's 30 years old, but has been ratified by 50 countries, mostly in Europe, uh, that could give fossil fuel companies even more of a weapon to go into these international tribunals and essentially get damages. I'm putting that in quote yep. damages for not being able <laughs> yeah. to burn fossil fuels. I, I think. I guess the question for you is. Having reported on this, how big a problem do you think this will be in terms of really serious global uh, climate policies? In other words, is this, is this something, some small little you know, corner of the legal world, or is this going to become a kind of driving force in, in the campaign to stop rational climate policy? I think it's one of the largest threats to global climate policy that we have. Um, it's it is. It's I was a like hoping for a deal. positive answer. I was like so hoping for like a not like a no. no this is no, no big deal. Even, but like even when um even when countries like so for example with the ECT the Energy Charter Treaty. Italy pulled out of that treaty years ago, and they still there's like a, a little like su, you know sunset clause in there where they're still being hauled into arbitration by fossil fuel companies for violating this treaty that they're no longer even a signatory to. Same thing happened with Ecuador. Ecuador pulled out of the like various treaties that that made them beholden to this process a long time ago, but Chevron still was able to take them to arbitration over the Chevron. Ron Ecuador case. So this is, you know, of course, the case that um, wound up, you know, putting Stephen Donziger on house arrest, um, you know, the, these indigenous people and farmers won their case against Chevron and Chevron immediately put all of these wheels in motion to stop from the collection of that settlement. So you can you can see it there, you know. So it's, it's almost like the tre- it's almost like the treaties say that there is a you, you as a company have a right to destroy the environment or be compensated for not destroying the environment. They say that, I mean, they basically give companies, to me, I'm just like, wow, this is this crazy, like extra governmental power that companies have that is just flying below the radar. It is a continuation of of colonialism. And they are absolutely subverting the sovereignty of 
every nation that is part of these treaties when they file these these arbitration claims. It, it's wildly undemocratic. Um, it gives more power to companies than any government has. And you know who can't go into these courts? You know who can't go into these courts? Like regular people can't go into these courts. Yeah, yeah. like if my yeah, exactly. community yeah. is the one that 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 the that my that the mine just destroyed my water supply, my community cannot walk into the ISDS court and be like, "Yo, the uh, coal company that from the you know foreign coal company that just came in here and built that mine and ruined my my community's water company uh, water supply. I need a billion dollars to fix everything. I uh, my, my my town cannot walk into the same court. That's right." That's exactly right. Yeah, it it is. It's it's um, enraging, and it it's so. And and then, like I said, it, it's to me. I'm like, God, what is the solution here? I, I almost, I actually have been um, trying to to talk to different lawyers to see, like, is there some way to um, litigate the legality of these of these agreements? Because. I don't, you know, I don't understand how they're not like these arbitral pl- panels are not imbued with like, I don't know, they're not, they're not a court, really. They're not, they're not any country's court. They're this sort of weird thing that exists above every country's court. It's the enforcement mechanism. The enforcement mechanism, as I understand it, is sanctions. Basically, every s- signatory to these treaties that create these uh, arbitration courts Essentially, if the court says, okay, you know, this small country here owes a billion dollars to the coal company, if if the country doesn't pay, then that small country then faces kind of collective sanctions uh, from the international community under this treaty from trade. Exactly. Mm -hmm. So it's it's you know a small country is in a position where essentially to try to protect their environment, their local environment, to try to help protect the sort of global ecosystem when it comes to climate, they are under threat of basically uh, having to pay huge damages, uh, facing international trade sanctions. I mean, it is exactly the opposite kind of policy that you want in the climate crisis. So, Amy, um, I I was slightly hoping to feel uh, more uh, 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 optimistic uh, about the comet headed towards Earth right now. I'm feeling a little bit despondent. So I'm going to end with a question that I always try to end with when we talk climate. What are you optimistic about, if anything, when it comes to the climate fight? The one thing that has been giving me a little bit of optimism is um, the sudden kind of growth and success of the rights of nature stuff. So I don't know if you've been following this, but there was a huge case in Ecuador towards the end of last year where, um, you know, that country included rights of nature into its constitution like 12, 13 years ago, but um, hasn't ever had a, a case at the Supreme Court level or in their case, the constitutional court level that really says like, okay, this is what we mean when we say rights of nature. And the thing that makes me sort of optimistic about it is that, you know, when people first hear it, they think, oh, this sounds like a woo-woo, like trees have rights, kind of like, you know, hippy-dippy bullshit thing. I'm all for the but, trees having rights, by the way. Yeah, yeah. I mean, what it, what it really does is, t- like, in my mind, I'm like, okay, well, you know, laws are really just like the codification of values and philosophies, right? And sort of like how we run our society. And what rights of nature does is provide a totally different decision-making framework for like where we're going to 
what things we're going to pursue as a society and where we're going to place value. So what you see in this, this Los Cedros case in Ecuador is that like, wow, they have this system in place that makes it so even if you're destroying water and land for the sake of electrification, which is what happened in that case, it was a mine where everything was going to, you know, batteries and whatnot. That's still a pro- We're saying that we don't, we want to change the whole way that we make decisions and the whole way that the system works, not just this one energy source. Um, so I don't know, to me, that's sort of like a real indication that there are some places on this planet where they're really thinking big on on systemic change. And you're starting to see that in the U.S. too. There's a few different communities in the U.S. that have invoked home rule. So this is a thing that exists in like, I don't know, it's 14 or 15 states, but almost all the oil and gas states have it. And it says that any community can basically kick the state out of their business. Obviously, we can see ways that this could go quite badly, right? But (laughs) there are also ways that it can and has been in the last few years used to block oil and gas drilling. So in Pennsylvania, there's a small town called Grant Township that did this. And they wrote rights of nature into their town charter and then used that to get rid of a fracking waste site. The state is now suing them, partnered up with the oil and gas company, just in case anyone has any questions about how in bed with the industry the state is there. Um, but, but you know, they're really fighting. And, and to me, I'm like, this is interesting because the, um, there's something about it that's, that's very appealing to libertarians, too, in this way of, like, you know, taking things down to, like, real local grassroots level and, like, That you is know. extremely encouraging. Um, the question ultimately can't be answered right now, but the question is, will that continue and will it be fast enough? Amy Westervelt, thank you so much for being you, for being Amy Westervelt and doing the work that you've done and for helping us understand what is happening right now. Thanks so much. Thank you. That's it for today's show. As a reminder, our paid subscribers who get Levertime Premium, you get to hear our bonus segment. It's my interview with UCLA law professor Adam Winkler. I spoke with Adam about the Supreme Court's recent decision in New York Rifle and Pistol Association versus Bruin, in which the court struck down a century-old law in New York State restricting concealed firearm permits, threatening basically almost every concealed carry regulation and law in states and cities across the country. The truth is, it's like every other constitutional provision we have, which is a reflection of an evolving and living society and the impact of social movements on constitutional change. And there's been a real movement to change how the Second Amendment was interpreted in the courts and elsewhere. Listeners can subscribe to Lever Time Premium by heading over to levernews.com. When you subscribe, you also get access to all of the Lever's website, our weekly newsletters, and our exclusive live events. And that's all for the criminally low price of just eight bucks a month or 70 bucks for the year. One last favor, please be sure to like, subscribe, and write up a review for Lever Time on your favorite podcast app. And make sure to head over to levernews.com and check out all of the reporting our team has been doing. Until next time, I'm David Sirota. Rock the boat.